Hello and welcome to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Dr. Wendy James is here. She's our medical director for NETS. She's also an attending physician in the ED at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Say hello, Wendy. Good morning. Good afternoon, everybody. So if you want to just tell the folks a little bit about your background in EMS, kind of how you started out and how we got here, that might be helpful too. Sure. So uh, EMS started for me in residency. Certainly uh, in med school, I went to med school at Tufts in Boston. Um, as I was in the ED, I had a lot of interaction with EMS, but didn't really get it until I was in residency for EM. And we had the luxury of using um, both ground and air transport as an educational tool so that we could fly independently as a physician on a helicopter with a medic, nurse medic, um, and actually be out in the field independently and certainly very quickly garnered a great appreciation for EMS and what they had to do with very little resources, which is basically your bag, your your mind, your body, and a couple of tips and tricks. So quickly learned that that was something I fell in love with. Um, I enjoyed flying. I flew a lot. I took lots of extra shifts because it was just my jam. Started teaching paramedics, started teaching EMS classes. And then as an attending, as I moved in various parts of the country to work, um, became a medical director, started really doing a lot of classes in education and just have stayed trying to keep EMS at a, at a good level that patient care has never been harmed by someone and always feeling like if somebody didn't know something, it was my job to bring that education to them, that I would never reprimand an EMT, but I would teach an EMT so the next time the care would be better. Yeah, and I, I really am appreciative that you're our medical director because you come from such a strong EMS background. I think that's really critical. As you know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of doctors out there, and I think you can really tell if the doctors have been in that environment, if they're under that pressure doing 911 or transport or scene flights or anything like that, and they're expected to make those decisions under pressure. Um, one of my officers at the fire department always says, um, everything's easy when you have three days to think about it, but it's not so easy when you have 10 seconds to make a decision. And I think having the experience that you have coming from that scene flight, coming from the 911 care, that really comes into play when you're being a medical director. Like I know with you, if I call you on the phone and I need to order for something, you probably know if I'm calling you and you hear yelling in the background, I probably need an answer relatively quickly. And I really appreciate that you can think quickly on the fly like that. I think in EMS, People have to understand what you do, and there are many attendings in the emergency department who are fabulous folks and are excellent clinicians, but don't have a true sense. Even though they went through an EM program, they might not have had a good 911 experience. Here at UVM with our new residency, we're making sure that's an integral part of what they're learning. And I think in today's world, that is integral. In the past, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that wasn't. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that's an integral part of their education now. And hopefully we won't run across people that don't have a sense of what you do because it's important when people pick up the phone to understand that you are in the weeds and you need an answer right now. Yeah. And we try to do our best at NETS too, to prepare our students for the actual field work. So rather than just teaching only their curriculum and giving them an EMT card and then just kicking them out of the nest to fly on their own, we try to do our best to help them get the tools they need to be successful in the fields. So that includes some leadership training and also working with you guys on medical direction. I mean, it's just as important for us to give you a clear, concise 
directed phone call, you guys should know what we're looking for within the first 10 to 20 seconds of what we're saying. We don't we don't want to talk to you guys for three minutes before you even know what we want. Because just as we're busy, you guys are busy too. I mean, I remember when I was doing clinical up there, one of the attendings was intubating a patient with the phone between her shoulder and her head trying to give medical direction about another thing. I mean, it is what it is. You know, you work there. Like, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Yeah, so the one thing I would always say is tell me what you need first and then describe to me why you need it. Yeah. Cause that gets the attention of everybody. And we often say that we have a, a attention span of about 30 seconds to a minute before we are being flagged down to do something else in the midst of what we're generally calling as day to day chaos of the ED. Um, but you got my attention for the first 30 seconds. So pitch fast and you'll get your answer fast. Yeah. And there's a reason why the, ED staff, the doctors, the nurses, and the techs all wear running shoes. I don't see anybody there in high heels or clogs. You know, they're they're wearing shoes to work for sure. Um, I have a reputation that people need a skateboard to stay behind me, yeah. so I move a little fast. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why the scribes' carts are on wheels. <laughs> exactly. So we're here to talk about airway today. Um, what I thought would be helpful, because I really trust your judgment, and I thought you helped me a lot throughout my education, is... I don't want to just go over the textbook and hit the objectives like what everyone gets in their curriculum. What I want to do is I want to touch on the things that I learned in the curriculum for my learning environment, but I use every single day on the ambulance. Stuff that I think is really critical that you know sometimes gets brushed over in some EMT classes, AEMT classes. Maybe you don't hit it till you get to the paramedic level, the critical care level, but the few things that we're going to talk about today are stuff that I really think is important, that I think is interesting, and I would love to hear your opinion on. All righty, so let's shoot. So, let's do it. The, so the first one I want to talk about is the classic relationship between tidal volume, so the amount of air you're bringing in each breath, and the minute volume, so how much air you're bringing over the course of a minute. Because I think there's a lot of these scenarios. We always talk to our EMT students about them doing their trauma exams, trauma assessments. And they get a patient who's unresponsive and they're breathing eight times a minute, but the evaluator says they're breathing very shallow. And I think sometimes I can put EMTs in a little bit of a tizzy because they may think that eight times a minute isn't really that bad. But then again, are they really taking into consideration the actual volume of air that's moving? So can you, can you talk a little bit about what we should be looking for and how we can start to make those decisions on what type of interventions we need? All right, let's start really basic, okay? First of all, the human body should be breathing 12 to 16 times a minute for regular airway exchange with a deep enough volume that's about 400 to 600 cc's. Now, how did I get that? I got the volume because we actually have a number. I'm not expecting you to do math on the fly per se, but it's about six to eight milliliters of actual bagged in air per ideal body weight by kilo. All right, so if you're a 70 kilo dude, you should have about 420 to 560 mLs per respiratory event for a regular resting breath. Now, if I'm doing that 12 to 16 times a minute, say it was 500 cc's, let's make the math really easy. I like that. All right, it's six liters. So you should be exchanging six liters. Again, I'm not trying to freak you all out with some math. Let's go back to the basics here. Breathe 12 times a minute at a reasonable depth, and you're going to be moving about six liters. If you are breathing eight times a minute and you're breathing shallowly, maybe you're only moving 200 mLs. Eight times 200, we get 1,600 mLs. You're short 4,400 mLs of air exchange. 
you are not respiring. You are not inhaling and exhaling appropriately. You are not going to exchange oxygen. You are not going to exit out CO2. You're going to build up your CO2. You're going to pop your end title on that person and they're going to have an end title of 55 or 60. And you're going to go, well, they're breathing at eight, but they're not breathing deep enough and they're not bringing enough volume in as well as the number of breaths per minute to give them adequate oxygenation and ventilation. Because there's two things here, right? We have to bring in oxygen, but ventilation is actually getting the oxygen across the alveolus and getting the CO2 back the heck out of that person's body. Yeah, that's a good point. So for you EMT students or EMT candidates that are listening, just I hope that you're listening to this and you realize that this isn't a person you can just throw an NRB on and forget about. You you have to ventilate because it's a ventilatory problem. It's the volume of air is not moving enough. And for these patients, if they're unresponsive, breathing at eight times a minute and shallow, until we can get a reliable oxygen saturation and potentially an end tidal caponometry, why would you not have a BVM attached to high flow oxygen? Do you see any reason not to do that? BVM is your single best friend. If someone is not breathing well, slapping a little oxygen on is not going to increase how much they're taking in. It's not going to increase how much they're exhaling out. You have to do that for them. Eight and shallow is bag me at 12 to 16 with half of a compression of an adult bag, which is going to give you about 500 mLs. Perfect. Yeah. And one of the things we like to tell our students is if you're unsure, if you're kind of on the either end of that, if you're at the, you know, 28 to 32, if you're at the, you know, six to eight, if you're in those areas, you're never wrong for saying, I'm going to assist ventilations with the bag valve mats attached to high flow oxygen, right? Because that could, that could mean you're completely ventilating them at 12 times a minute, or it could mean maybe you're just assisting them every other breath if they're breathing okay. What you're trying to do is you're trying to accomplish that roughly, I mean, I know we're, it's based on size, but let's just say for a regular adult size patient, you're looking for about six liters, right? You're trying to get to that yes. point. And you may be supplying them with 500 milliliters per breath, or you may be supplying them with 100 milliliters per breath. And you as the ventilator or the person running the BVM, it's your job to start to titrate those things based on the end title and the oxygenation, the skin color, all those other things. Um, and if they wake up, maybe all they needed was some ventilations. Like I'm sure you and I have had people where they're completely unresponsive with agonal respirations. Think of, you know, an overdose, right? And you start to ventilate them. You give them the volume they need. You give them a little bit of oxygen if they need oxygen as well. And all of a sudden their vital signs start to stabilize. They get a little bit better. Sometimes something as simple as good high quality bag valve mass ventilation is what the person needs. The key in that is ventilation. As the yeah. CO2 climbs, the patient becomes more and more somnolent to unconscious. You start ventilating them. Again, we're not talking oxygenation, although that's nice. Ventilating them, getting oxygen in, getting the CO2 the heck out, drops their CO2. They become more alert, more mentally functional. They'll start breathing more on their own. Yeah, that's a really good point. So let's transition into oxygenation a little bit. Cool. And I just want to... Um, just very basically, let's give just a lightning round here. So I want you to give me a scenario for when you would use a nasal cannula, when you would use a NRB, and when you would bag someone in terms of oxygenation. All right. So I come upon a person who has uh, a little bit of chest pain and short of breath. They've got a fever. They've got a cough. Not COVID at the moment. Let's just say we got a regular old pneumonia here. Yeah, the okay? old regular pneumonia. You actually used your stethoscope and you listened to their lungs. And you heard funny sounds in one of the in one of the areas, and you went ahead and took their sat, and it was ninety one percent, 
91 is not okay. All right, we know that the, your cells are going to have a problem if they don't get enough oxygen and we like it to be somewhere between 94, some people say 93, some people are even starting to say 92. Let's just say 94 and give us the cells a number that we're always going to shoot for, yeah. okay? Your cells like 94, that's a good place to go. Two liters of nasal cannula takes my 91 to 94, pop, we're up, I'm good. I don't need to do anything more for that person as far as oxygenation. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, and th these things should all be working together, right? You should be looking at the actual ventilation of air, the mechanical movement, as well as the oxygenation, which may be indicated by either the SpO2 or the end tidal CO2. You got to make sure that you're using all of those pieces because there's times where one of those might be okay and the other one might not be, right? Correct. So we walk up on somebody else. So in my mind, I see somebody that's breathing. Um, I had a patient recently breathing like 26, 28 times a minute, pretty deep, but is really pale, sweaty, diaphoretic, has a COPD history. We know the patient. We look down, the oxygen tank is lying on the floor empty, right? Classic NREMT scenario. For me, before I ask the patient's name and allergies, that's one of my personal pet peeves is if you have someone in complete respiratory distress or impending respiratory arrest and your provider is asking them their name and date of birth, don't do that, right? My, my, my first instinct is get them on high flow auction, just blast them with auction because it takes me six seconds to set that up. And then I can start thinking about like, all right, let me get the SpO2 on. Let me get the end title on. Let me think about, you know, let's get the bag ready, you know, in case they pass out or go unresponsive. For me, I want to hit it. I want to hit that patient with high flow oxygen quick if they're in that much distress because I don't need an SpO2 or a end tidal CO2 within the first three seconds if someone looks like they're having that guppy breathing look like they're about to pass out. Would you say that's pretty fair? This scenario is not the time to worry about free radicals. No. This is not the scenario to worry about hyperoxygenation and what's that going to do to their cellular structure because they're going to be dead in four minutes if you don't do something right now. So hyperoxygenate with 100% oxygen and a person who looks like they're terrible, they're sweaty, they're pale, they're diaphoretic, their eyes roll back in their heads, get that oxygen on, let it flow freely, and then take your moment to get out your equipment. Do not set up your pulse ox first. This is okay to roll into the ED and say, I don't know what their room air sat was because I didn't have a chance to get one because they were blue. And yeah. that's plenty damn fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Trust your instincts. To so those of you that are on EMS calls, hopefully, if you're new, you're not the most experienced person there. I know sometimes some funky stuff happens, um, but... Usually there's some sort of experienced provider there. And for me, I was able to be mentored by a lot of really good providers. I had good instincts. And if you show up, there's a lot of times, you know, if someone is pale and sweaty and they look like they just got pulled out of a pool, something's wrong, right? That, that's not normal. If they're sitting at their desk and they're pouring sweat, you can start to think about, all right, it, you know, it might be a blood trigger thing. It might be a heart thing. It might be a breathing thing. But you know that person's not okay, right? They're not, they're not just going to sit there like you that. You can't fake diaphoresis. No. Okay. So if you are sitting there diaphoretic in some sort of distress, whether it's chest pain or difficulty breathing or searing pain into your back because your aorta is ripping, all of those things are bad and oxygen will only help in the short term. COPDers are not going to get into trouble with high flow O2 in the amount of time that EMS is interacting with them. 
Absolutely. If we leave them on a 100% non-rebreather for the next day and a half, we may have some trouble. But the amount of time that you are interacting with this patient, I do not want you to be afraid of treating a COPD with high flow O2 out of concern for their respiratory drive. Take care of the patient and you will be fine. Yeah, I think I think my personal perspective is if you walk up to that classic COPD exacerbation, you have 72, 78% oxygen, they look pale, diaphoretic, they may be blue or cyanotic around the lips or mouth, you give them high flow NRB and get them up into the 90s, mid 90s until they're not in distress. And then if you want to go back and switch them to a nasal cannula and slowly bring them down and see how their auction does and see how they're doing, that's okay. But what we don't want to do is have the brand new EMT that's worried about the hypoxic drive and they show up and they put them on two liters per minute and now the patient's unresponsive, right? We want to address it quick with high flow auction, get them stable. Then we can start to mess around with titrating and figuring out where they're at and what they need and all that stuff for sure. Treat sit back, then you can think. Yeah, make sure they're but not going to die and get worse. That's the problem with EMS is our request is treat them quickly, then you can sit back and think a little bit more about your differential diagnosis. But there's some very simple things, airway, breathing, circulation. And the reason why we have ABCs is because that's as simply as what we want to do in that quick 10 seconds that you walk in and you have to make a decision. Then you can sit back and think and use all your tools, all your education, all your abilities to kind of titrate back on your activities. But there's nothing wrong with being aggressive, and it's benefit to your patient to be a little aggressive right out the gate. Yeah, absolutely. And this ties into the testing that we've been talking about over the last few episodes of NREMT testing. Those of you that are either EMTs or AEMTs or even paramedics, you may walk into your medical scenario, and if the patient is breathing 30 times a minute and they they look blue and pale and all those other things, they may be expecting you to administer oxygen before you even start talking to the patient because that's considered a life threat. One of the first pieces that you could actually be evaluated on on those sheets is um, identifies and treats any life threats. And same thing with your ABCs. As you're going through ABCs, if if you're asking questions about allergies or previous medical history, that's secondary assessment. Your primary assessment has to be treating those life threats. And the life threat may be that they can't breathe. Remember, Chris and Kate were talking about one of the most common reasons people feel trauma in medical almost always is because they treat they don't treat the life threat first. They go into the secondary assessment or they start asking questions or they take a blood pressure and the patient's not breathing adequately. You have to treat it right away. I know sometimes, you know, you could have a scenario where someone's in anaphylaxis, in true anaphylaxis. They have a peanut butter allergy. They eat a peanut butter cookie. They have hives, difficulty breathing. And they feel like their throat is swelling. Are you going to sit there and ask them the last time this happened before and how long it's been going on and where does the pain radiate? They're going to be unconscious by the time you actually give them the epi. There may be times where you show up on a call and you pull out the EpiPen and you give the EpiPen, then you start to think about the other things because you have to give that medicine the time to work. Remember, that's not going to work immediately. It's not intravenous. You know, it's not, um, it's not going to go right in. So just remember when you're going through these scenarios or in the real world, there may be times where you have to treat a life threat right away. And then you can start thinking about all the other pieces and start doing your differential. That's going to show up on your exam as well. So we know that on the various level exams, they're going to give you this long scenario, a whole bunch of vital signs, and then they're going to say to you, what's the first thing to do? Yeah. And it's going to be put on oxygen. Yes. Airway, yep. breathing, circulation. So do not be fooled. And if they give you a scenario, again, with a low or excessively high respiratory rate and a shallow respirations, you had best intervene. That's a life threat. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Um, so let's just touch. We talked a little bit about free radicals. Um, so a classic scenario that we train our EMT for um, for just life and the test is chest pain. So if you have someone who's having chest pain, they're diaphoretic, they're pale, they're sweaty, um, and they're oxygenating, they're oxygenating at 96% room air. Do we as clinicians and thinkers believe that that is directly correlated with uh, some sort of oxygenation problem? They might be sweaty because of something else. Is that right? Right. So again, um, the human body will diaphorese if there is a catastrophic event, such as a vascular emergency, either your aorta ripping or you're having an MI, um, or the work of breathing is creating that diaphoresis. So if you are coming to a patient who is breathing easily but clutching their chest and saying, I'm having horrible chest pain, and their SAT's 96, leave them there. Our newest way of thinking is, yes, there's a supply versus demand problem at the coronary artery. We know that there's a blockage in that coronary artery or a clot that's almost completely blocking that coronary artery. And we know that it's a, the oxygen, um, the, the heart is asking for more oxygen and more blood flow. But at the moment, they actually have enough oxygenation in their red cells to do the job that's needed. If we give them extra and hyperoxygenate them, then we're actually going to create something called free radicals, which is an O3 molecule, right? Oxygen's O2. We add another oxygen onto that. That's O3. That's a free radical. And those of you who know that we took away a lot of propellants in our spray cans years ago because of ozone, O3 is ozone. You do not want something that destroys the atmosphere of our world in your blood vessels. This is a very destructive thing, O3. So we don't want that in your body if we can help it. So if we're in the weeds with a COPD or yes, slap the 100% oxygen on. I don't care about the free radicals right now because they're going to be dead in 10 minutes anyway. I'll deal with it in 20, 30 minutes when they're back at the hospital. Fine. But an MI who's sitting there and sitting with a SATA 96 does not need supplemental oxygen. Remember, our number is 94. 94 is good. Yeah, we're looking for that. Most protocols now are looking for that 94 to 98% in that range is pretty healthy for everybody. Sometimes with COPD, it can be a little bit lower. That's that's okay. We're not too worried about that. And um, they will know that. You oh, know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. COPD, you'll say, what's your usual set? They're like, I'm never over 91. Well, then don't go to 94 on them either because that's not where they're shooting for. Yep. You got to treat the signs and symptoms of what you're seeing. If you have someone in their COPD and they're at 91, 92%, are you going to force them to, to get oxygen? Remember, you're you're treating the patient, not the machine, right? Just because the machine is blinking at you, you got to do a little bit of critical thinking. The other thing I want to touch on too is if you have that chest pain patient and they're having a massive MI, especially if they've had a previous MI before and they're having a ton of pain in their chest and they probably think they're going to die and all these other things, that could potentially raise their respiratory rate a little bit too. And don't get fooled by respiratory distress and pain. Those can kind of those can kind of come together. You have to do a little bit of thinking about this stuff. You can't just, you just show up and put, we don't put everybody on an NRB and lime on a backboard anymore. We got to think a little bit. Right. This is not cookbook anymore. This isn't, if I see A, I get B. We do know that people with chest pain will get shortness of breath. We do know that people with arrhythmias can have chest pain and shortness of breath. They don't need extra oxygen. They need their arrhythmia fixed. So just because somebody's complaining of chest pain or shortness of breath, they don't all need nitroglycerin. They don't all need to be bagged. Use your brain and sit and think. Now, we know as the different levels are educated and you go from your basic to your advanced to your P to your critical care, you're going to get more of that knowledge. But if you can garner that knowledge early, and as a 
a, a basic or an A really start to understand the physiology that we're talking about here with patients, you are going to be a much better provider. Don't leave it to somebody else. Try to be the best provider you can be. And I think podcasts like this give people little snippets to work with, which is what your entire goal is, which is wonderful, to teach people the little things that they need to know. You don't need to know everything about anatomy and physiology to understand the fact that the patient's having chest pain. They're going to be a little short of breath. They're going to be trying to, to breathe a little faster because they're trying to cope with the discomfort. We all know pain makes you breathe harder. Yeah. Absolutely. And I want to give a quick nod just to you and your program, because one of the things you I remember you always stress with us is those arrhythmias stemming from hypoxia, because it can be so common. And I tell you, I've had so much luck. You show up to an AFib patient, those of you that are paramedics or studying for paramedics, do not underestimate oxygen in an arrhythmia. It's incredible. It really is so underestimated. There's been so many times where I've had an, a new onset or a acute onset AFib patient or something like that, you throw them on a nasal cannula while you're getting the 12-lead set up. By the time you go to get the 12-lead, it's gone, right? It's just because those patients are susceptible. And if they have those you know, pre-existing heart conditions, and even if they drop from 94% to 90%, that could be enough to stimulate that rhythm. You get them right back up to 94 and it just disappears. The first thing you do before you start running down the ACLS algorithm and slamming adenosine and doing all that, try a little bit of oxygen, right? A nasal cannula is a lot less invasive than an IV and a, you know, an AV node blocker, right? Let's, let's slow down a second. At least let that, and it, it doesn't require anything. You hook up the hook up the nasal cannula, set it up, set it on two, four liters per minute, forget about it, right? No problem. So don't underestimate that. I like the fact that you listened to class. No, I try. It really <laughs> does work. It really does work. Absolutely. So moving on, just we would be remiss if we didn't touch on it. Let's just touch on ARDS. Um, ARDS, for those of you that uh, have heard about it or don't remember it, it's acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and it's, it's, pretty much what people are experiencing when they're going through really severe cases of COVID. So it's something that was touched on a little bit in my A program. Uh, it was touched on more in my paramedic program, but really wasn't heavily explained until my flight program where you start dealing with ventilators and things like that. This, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is really heavily an ICU disease. This is going to require some maintenance. This is major league ICU time. So this is the patient who has probably stayed home too long um, for most infectious illnesses. Caveat being with COVID that we know somewhere between day seven and 10, um, if people are going to go down the tubes, they're going to get ARDS and they may be at home and then suddenly tank. So what this is, is basically all the alveoli, those little grape sacs that are in your lungs start leaking. The, they basically get little holes punched in them by the virus, basically. And now they can't hold oxygen, but they also can't hold the fluid back from the capillaries. So the fluid that's in the capillaries is leaking out into the alveolar space, and you're basically starting to drown yourself. Um, as the destruction continues throughout the lungs, the patient can't oxygenate, and they can't, again, ventilate. Oxygen into capillaries, CO2 out of capillaries. They can't do this. The lungs become rigid because there's so much fluid. The tissue breakdown continues and continues to the point where they are ventilated, by an ET tube, they're really hard to ventilate, they're hard to bag because their lungs are so stiff, um, and sometimes we start seeing people getting flipped onto their bellies. Well, if you think about why we do that, if you lay on your back, your heart, your stomach, your esophagus, all your mediastinal structures are gonna be pushing back on those lungs. We need every alveolus that maybe can work 
to work. So we flip that patient over and we stick them on their belly and they're ventilated on their belly, which allows all those organs to go against the bed. The lungs can now expand because they're up. And that's one of our treatments. So yes, if you go into an ICU, you will see a a COVID patient or an ARDS patient laying on their belly. That's to optimize the ability for any alveolus that is still working to participate. Typically, this patient is going to get transferred if they continue to do poorly to a center that does ECMO. Extracorporeal perfusion is basically it. It's going on a bypass machine, and we're going to breathe for you by taking the blood out, oxygenating it, and sticking it back in because your lungs don't work. So many medics and critical care folks will be transferring these people to a center that can do ECMO. Yeah, and that's for those of you that are um, big EMS nerds like me, there was actually um, a show, An Hour to Save Your Life. It was on Netflix. It was about the flight physicians from London EMS, the HEMS program out there. And I believe there was actually an episode where they do ECMO in the street, which is pretty interesting. So pretty wild. I don't know how uh, how clean that could be. but uh, um, Not clean, but you know what? If you're dying, you'll take it. It is, it is. You yeah. know, the little, little antibiotics later is no big deal. Yeah, we'll figure that, right? Treat the life threat first, and we'll go back and figure Always the Always treating the out. life threat. Airway, breathing, and circulation, right? Do you have an airway? Great. That's the structure. Cool. Can you breathe? Can you ventilate? Can you oxygenate? There's two pieces to breathing. Yeah, I think I just want to give three quick um, pieces of three quick tools that I picked up over the last few years that I think are dramatically undersold. One of them is the Decanto catheter. If you guys have ever experienced that, it's a large bore suction catheter. If you guys have ever tried to suction a nasty airway, it can be pretty challenging. And if you get, uh, just leave one of those on your ambulance somewhere tucked away in the in the difficult airway kit. It's a huge, huge help. The other one is um, using one of those, uh, uh, those, memory foam CPAP masks for your BVM. If you're having a really hard time getting a seal, sometimes it can be a little easier to get that sealed on there, especially if you use the large uh, CPAP mask for those big, huge, you know, no teeth, bearded, large men. Sometimes I can just give you a little bit extra. And then I think the number one uh, most underestimated tool that I think after going through some of these programs, I think every ambulance should have on is a peep valve for your BVM. It's it's just crazy to me that if you don't have a peep valve for your BVM, um, think of these patients, these ARDS patients, your pulmonary edema patients that are coming from your CHF exacerbation, things like that. If you haven't had a chance, go on YouTube and just type in peep valve BVM, and you can see some different cadaver labs of how it keeps the lungs inflated and you keep those alveoli recruitment. If you were to talk to an ICU doc or a flight, a flight nurse, flight physician, someone who's running a ventilator all day, all day every day, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, but... PEEP is something that probably they're going to be thinking about at least every 30 seconds. Yeah, so we try and keep PEEP between 5 and 10 for most people. Five people for five for a normal person. We may have to go up to 10 as PEEP, which is the positive end expiratory pressure. Um, sometimes we have to push back on it. People, when they're breathing on their own, will auto-PEEP, where they'll kind of grunt and they'll take a deep breath in and kind of, <clears throat> and what they're trying to do is splint open their alveoli. If they have certain diseases, the alveoli are going to collapse and we need more pressure at the end to hold those alveoli open. So we know in ARDS slash COVID um, that we start seeing peak pressures 20s, 30s, 40s. If you put on the PEEP valve, it'll protect you about 5 or 10, depending on what you dial, so that you won't push any more pressure into the patient than 5 or 10. We want to avoid lung injury. We know bagging hard or long-term ventilator with high pressures 
hurts the lungs, and then the patient can't get off sometimes. Yeah, and remember with our COPD and our asthmatic, sometimes you can get that breast stacking for the paramedics and people like that. Just remember that you have to leave time for the air to come out, just like you have to leave time for the air to go in. You can't just, you, you actually need more time for the air to expel out than you actually need to go in. And you should really be thinking about that. Um, I've actually heard stories, I don't know if you've had any stories of this, but I've heard stories of doctors and RTs actually getting on top of the patient and pushing their chest in to try to help expel that air out so you can actually get the air out so that you can put new air in. Because if you're stuck in that dead space and you can't get the air out, it's not going to help you actually oxygenate and ventilate them. So your key to that's going to be, one, they may be barrel-chested, they may not. Two, their end tidal CO2 is going to be high. So you're bagging them and they're continuing to have high CO2s. They're not ventilating. Something's wrong. Can you get the air in? Is there some sort of obstruction? Nope, seems to bag in great. Okay, is it coming out? And we call that stacking. And as you quickly bag, give them one second to, to breathe, exhale, and then bag again, the I to E ratio, inspiratory to expiratory ratio matters. Breathe, bag for one second, and then you gotta give them between three and four seconds to exhale out. It's a passive motion that has to happen. And if those lungs don't compress back down or the exhalation is not fully complete, You'll stack the breath. You'll hyperinflate the lungs. They'll maintain their CO2. The CO2 will then drive up. And everything you're trying to do, which is oxygenate and ventilate, is failing purely because you're not giving them enough time. So yes, yesterday, we unhooked the vent. We pushed on his chest. We hooked the vent back up because he had been stacked. Yeah, and just keep in mind, the, the paramedics, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. I mean, people go to cardiology school for four, six years to be cardiologists, you know, and, and the RTs go to school for 18 months, two years to become RT specialists. Guess what? When you're out in the boonies and you're 45 minutes away from the hospital and you have some old ventilator that hasn't been used in the last three months, I mean, it's John Wayne time. You got to figure it out. I mean, you have to be paying attention to this stuff. And when you're doing your clinicals, I encourage you not to just sit there and doodle on your piece of paper. You have RTs there. You have attending physicians there. You know, when I did my ICU time, I had one of the attend like the most prominent attending physicians that was helping me. It was explaining EKGs to me, you know, and how cool is it to go back and you're reading a scholarly article on the World Wide Web and that's the author, right? So you're sitting 10 feet away from them and they want to help you, but guess what? They're not going to go track you down and tap you on the shoulder and teach you something. They're busy people, but utilize your resources when you're in the, there's a reason you go to the cath lab and the OR and the ICU and the SICU and the MICU and the ED right we're not just making you watch YouTube videos you're there for the people and the patients to get the experience so it's really important to pay attention to that stuff for sure the idea is to suck their brains dry the bottom line is the reason why you're giving that exposure is because we want you to suck their brains dry for anything you can garner from them otherwise you wouldn't be there yeah, and I'd like to think of this podcast as clinical for your brain. I'm trying to bring people with interesting ideas and perspectives into one area where you can just have it on the background of your car, where you would normally maybe not run across Dr. James. Maybe you wouldn't be able to talk about airway with her, but maybe if you have an on-demand podcast about airway, maybe you can start to pick up some of those things that she has to say. So that's, that's the point of what we're trying to do here. So before we go, um, we have about five minutes left. What I want to just go over quickly is I just want you to explain to the folks what you would do in the ED when you're managing an airway. So if you have a difficult airway, a failed airway, someone who's not breathing properly, someone who has a non-patent airway, because I want to give the viewers who are in EMS an idea of what 
amount of resources and time and energy and training goes into managing an airway because it should theoretically be reflected in the pre-hospital system. The problem is in the pre-hospital system, we maybe don't have as many resources. So I want you to think about it as she's explaining it about what type of planning and preparation and execution goes into what they do in the ED and think about what that means for us in the pre-hospital system. So let's say someone shows up on the doorstep, let's say uh, Worcester EMS special, the door flies open in the parking lot of the ED, someone gets dumped out and they speed off and you show up and the patient has no airway for whatever reason you pick. Right. So again, life threats, right? So I'm looking at them. Is there anything hemorrhaging that I need to stick a finger in? And if not, okay, then I'm going airway. So BVM, first, basic. You always have this and you have this skill. There's a reason why we harp on being able to have a good C-clamp on the face, that you know how to do a jaw thrust and you know how to align that airway. I can do just about anything if I have two sets of hands. One is mine, holding onto the bag and bagging, and the other is sometimes having to maneuver the anterior trachea into alignment so I can get the oxygen in. If somebody's got a tumor down there or they got a mass down there or there's a hot dog down there, can you somehow maneuver the airway to get the air in? Somebody's got to be bagging. Somebody's got to have a great seal on that face, and again, the face comes up to the bag. You don't squash the bag down onto their face. Bring the jaw up to the face to the bag and start bagging. Somebody needs to try and align that trachea. If I can't get that, obviously I'm looking in first to see if there's an obstruction, get out my McGill's and get that puppy out if I can. Now, if I'm thinking I got to take this airway control, then I got to start to think intubation and can I get it in? Short, fat neck, tongue the size of a small country, no jaw, am I even going to get it in? Or am I going to say, somebody go get the crike tray while I'm standing here? Yeah. I'm going to bag, I'm going to take a look if we can't get an ET tube in, am I going to use a bougie? Am I going to use a bougie prelim? First thing in. I'm not going in with an ET tube. I'm going to go in with a laryngoscope and a bougie and feel my tracheal rings and go in. And that's your first attempt, best attempt. For first attempt, that- best attempt. You know, the, the, the first time you go, because, you know, whether you're bagging too hard or somebody is bagging for you while you're setting up and then they york up the ZD that they just had and four beers, like now you're in trouble, right? So it's your first smoke that you're going to get. So... Lift up, try and get the best view you can get. Can somebody give you some crike pressure? That's great. If they can't, can you get it in with the bougie? If I don't have good function with bougie and I can't intubate, can I use a supraglottic? Well, if they're vomiting, answer's no, because now I got ZD down there and I'm going to trap the ZD in there. So can I clear the airway and get the supraglottic in or am I just going anterior and I'm cutting? So surgical crike, that's what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, and... I'll, I'll give myself about a minute before I go there. Yeah. And this is important to remember. I can say this to you because I know you used to run scene in 911, but you know, this, that what she's experiencing right now in the ED, you have lights, you got a bed, you have an RT, you have a pharmacist, you have maybe a resident with you. You might have a paramedic student, you have an attending, you have maybe one or two nurses. Hopefully you probably have a tech or two getting access for you. I mean, this is an innovation, especially a crash innovation like this. You're probably looking at, I mean, pre-COVID era, obviously you're probably looking at maybe six to eight people there to help you all trained at that level to do whatever you need them to do when they're experienced and they're in the controlled environment. Surgery might be getting paged to come down and help out with whatever. Now imagine that you're trying to do that same call, but you're in a dark parking lot you know, and it's raining and you got one other person who's CPR only certified, you're 45 minutes away from the hospital. What I want you to take in consideration is 
Think about how difficult these things can be and remember that your basic maneuvers are going to manage most of your patients. One of the best pieces of advice I got from a senior paramedic that was working with me when I started entering intercept programs was you may be called to go to a rural service or a rural agency to intercept them and all you may have to do is suction and BVM. But because they don't see that, or maybe they run 100 calls a year and they've never had an unresponsive not breathing, for you, your time in clinical and your time to interact with those patients when you're doing your ride time is when you're supposed to sharpen those skills. So when you show up, it's like, oh, no big deal. Let's suction the airway. Let's put the oral airway adjunct in and let's ventilate the patient. For those of you that have tested recently, that sounds pretty familiar to a station that we do at the NREMT, right? There's a reason that that's there. Certainly suction is a huge thing that you got to remember. You know, if the ZD's there, you got to get it out. Um, and remember that most of our trauma patients eat a full pizza and a six-pack of beer before their trauma. Yes. Now, in regards to tips and tricks in the field, yes, I've in, have I intubated laying on my belly in the grass on the side of a highway with cars whizzing by? Yes. The airway's bloody. What do you do when the airway's bloody and you keep suctioning and you can't see? You can't see. What's the tip that I taught you? Stick the suction catheter in there, leave it open, just let that thing suck right out. Right, leave the suction catheter in there, okay? Yeah. There's plenty of room for everybody. But leave the suction in there, and, and if, again, we're talking paramedic level intubation, follow the bubbles, okay? The airway is going to slowly bubble in that blood, and you can just stick a blind stick, go in you know, with your bougie, but go where the bubbles are, and that's probably where the trachea is going to be. But get your suction and leave it in there. Remember, you only have so many hands. And when you're the only person that can do all of these operative tasks, you got to also be able to verbally tell people what you need. I need you to get on that trachea. I need you to give me a burp, right? So we need you to go backwards and off to the right, and I need you to push that airway where I need it to be. And sometimes I'll just grab their hand, direct that airway where I need it to be so I can see, and say, stay right there. So you've got to be able to be both directive and quick thinking when you've got an airway. So can you bag it? And if that's all you got and it's working, stop. If you have to intubate it, are you sure you're going to get it? Do you have your adjunct if you're not going to? And where the heck is your crite kit if you fail in the next minute? Yeah, air is air. Is air. If you have a decent SpO2 and you have a decent seal and the patient's getting better, don't touch anything. Don't move. Just Get them to the hospital, let them get controlled, let them get stable, figure the rest out later. Um, the last thing I want to go over before we we sign off here on this episode um, is I just want to have you guys pay attention to everything that we've talking about. I want to make sure that you're comfortable with these basic interventions. Remember that the NRMT is going to be testing you on these things, and it's for a reason, right? You may be experiencing these things in the field. Um, if you have any questions, you can certainly contact us at netsvt.com. That's our website. You can always get in contact with us. We'd be happy to talk more with you. We'd be happy to work with you one-on-one -on -one and try to help you with some of these things. The goal is to have you be prepared so that the first time you interact with this in the field isn't the first time you've ever done it. That's probably not going to lead to a successful outcome. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here, Dr. James. Um, hopefully you guys picked something up from this. Um, uh, we'll see you around, hopefully. Hopefully not in a bad scenario. I would prefer socially rather than on the trauma table. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs>